Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. UC San Diego is the seventh of what is now a thriving 10-campus system of the University of California, known worldwide for its excellence in research, teaching, and public service. We'll show you some of that tonight. From UC Berkeley, research into understanding and teaching happiness. From UC Davis, training doctors to work in rural communities. And from UCLA, a peek into the stacks of the library's special collections. We'll begin tonight in Compton, where middle school teachers and students are back in class, well-rested, we hope, after a long summer break. But as Larissa Brannon reports, vacation for one Compton teacher meant becoming a student again. Okay, on Tuesday, we completed a lab on speed, distance, and time. Cicely Mallet, an eighth grade physical science teacher, could have earned some extra income by teaching summer school here at the Benjamin Davis Middle School in Compton. But instead, she spent two months working and training up north at the UC-affiliated Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Teaching, you constantly want to learn. Every year is something different. You know, it's constantly changing. That's science. Science never stops. The U.S. Department of Energy funds summer programs at 14 national labs, which are designed to turn middle and high school teachers into scientists by providing them with hands-on research experience that they can take back to the classroom. Our teacher programs are really focused on having teachers become researchers themselves. So they do an eight-week program where they are actually paired with a mentor. They do a project uh, that's actually doing research and then we have weekly meetings that help them to transfer that experience to the classroom. My approach as a mentor is to craft a uh, research experience for each teacher that's tailored to what they're interested in and the skill level that they bring to the lab. For Cicely Mallet, that meant a project that analyzed data and a reminder of what it's like to be a student. Trying to get the measurements just right, I was like, Really? <laughs> like, I had to keep doing it over and over and over again. But other than that, I kind of felt how my students were feeling like, no, do it again, do it again, do it again. Yeah, so. And her time in the lab has affected how she teaches in the classroom. Hop, right? What was my? Two seconds, okay? Here, we're calculating speed. So everyone knew that my distance was what? Two it's changed a lot because at first, as far as journals and science notebooks and things like that, I didn't have my students um, using those frequently because I was like, oh, that's something more I have to grade. But since I've been in the program for the last two years, I realized that the labs that they do is consistently building on what they're going to have to do at the end. So if they have a lab notebook, it'll be easier for them to come back to that and flip back through the book and be like, oh, I remember this, this is this, this is that, and they can add on to it. The lab considers it our responsibility to, to also train the next generation of scientists. The key to prosperity for the country is actually our scientific and technological inventiveness and innovation. To train teachers to understand science and communicate it with passion to the students who would be the next generation of scientists is really investing in our own future. The one project which you will now see is we are trying to help figure out what is the best set of fuel-efficient stoves 
that should be taken to Haiti in the reconstruction effort. There are close to 100 non-profit organizations actively trying to distribute stoves in Haiti, but they don't have any ability to test which stoves are how fuel efficient, and we have offered to do that. As a teacher, I've, I love this. It's great. It gives me an opportunity to stay involved with current science. In terms of bringing it to my students, like I could show them the way that what I'm teaching them and what they're learning is used in everyday situations for things that they don't really connect science with. About 50 miles away, another summer program was in full swing at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. The Livermore Lab sponsors its own teacher research academy, and teachers come here to gain experience, develop their content knowledge, and do research internships. We've developed our program based upon the input from some master teachers. And the, one of the things that they have told us over the years is science teachers need content knowledge. We're actually extracting our own DNA from our cheek cells and then we are putting that into PCR and we're magnifying or multiplying the DNA strands. I think our students are interested in things that um, relate to them, that they can say, hey, that's my DNA and I want to know what's going on. They can understand how they saw it on CSI on TV, then it's relevant to them. Before entering into this internship, I had never actually had a real scientific research experience. I got to conduct science and bring that experience back to my classroom as a science teacher that actually does science, which I think means a lot um, to the kids. And clearly to the teachers as well. It's, it's something that will change the way you look at how you do your lesson plan. This is the way to get out of the teacher perspective, but at the same time you're able to input that into your lesson plan and, and do great things with it. For State of Minds, I'm Larissa Brannan. Next, finding out what makes people happy. Scientists at UC Berkeley are discovering that a lot of what we think we know is actually true. Happiness does come from healthy relationships with one another, and achieving it can be taught. Roxanne McCoskin takes a look at the science of a meaningful life. The big question is, what makes people happy? Christine Carter is not an elementary school teacher. She's a sociologist at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She's giving the students at Havens Junior Elementary School a lesson in a new subject, one that is finally getting some attention from grade schools on up to research universities, the study of happiness. I think that there has been a long-fueled notion in our, in our culture, in our society, that happiness is fluffy, that it isn't something that is, um, is important. It's certainly some, not something that um, the most intelligent among us necessarily need or even want. Carter has set out to change that. Armed with the results of a wide range of recent studies, Carter visits schools, gives parenting classes, has written a book, and publishes a blog all about the benefits of raising happy children. What we know now is that if what we want is for our children to be high achievers, to be good learners, if we want what we want for ourselves is to be successful in life, one of the best things that we can do is to focus on our emotional well-being. Let's push in chairs and come back to the rug, please. I think what she does is really important. I think that when you feel good in your environment, when you feel happy, when you feel confident and you like coming to school, 
then you're going to be able to take risks. You're going to be able to try to learn new things. And that's, that's how you do go further in education. For decades, psychologists tended to focus on studying our negative emotions, like fear, anger, and greed. But increasingly, over the last decade, they've turned instead to our positive emotions, examining our capacity for compassion, gratitude, and trust. They call it the science of happiness, and it's blossoming here at UC Berkeley. We have gotten interested in these concepts, right? We've gotten interested in um, compassion or gratitude. You know, only eight or nine years ago, there was one study of gratitude in the scientific literature. You know, thousands of studies of anger, one of gratitude. Dr. Keltner is a psychology professor leading research on emotion and social interaction. He says that science now has the technology for a much closer look into the brain and nervous system, allowing scientists to put to the test some of our oldest scientific notions. There is this long-standing assumption that it really, in terms of evolution, it really is survival of the fittest. And it's important to know that wasn't Darwin who said that, but somebody who came after Darwin named Herbert Spencer. Um, what Darwin said in Descent of Man is sympathy is our strongest instinct, um, which when I read that, uh, I was floored. In a variety of studies covering mental, physical, and social responses to situations, Keltner and others have found that our bodies are built to care, to be sympathetic. They found that a smile or a compassionate touch releases certain stress-reducing hormones, both in the person giving the smile or touch and in the recipient. Keltner also did a long-term study showing those people who smiled more positively in their high school yearbooks had a higher level of emotional well-being, 30 years down the line. I'm going to be putting these on um, two of your fingers. Jenny Steller works with Keltner on their latest research, studying participants' reactions to a sad video. They look at the subject's heart rate and breathing when the person is relaxed, then again when the person watches a neutral video not meant to evoke emotion. Then the subject watches a video about children with cancer. One would assume that participants' heart rates would go up because watching young cancer patients would be stressful. That's actually kind of the opposite of what we found. So when individuals are watching this compassion-inducing video, this sad video, uh, we actually see that their heart rate goes down. Um, and what we think that that may be signaling is that the body is calming itself, surprisingly, but it's doing that to prepare to engage in a very peaceful manner, maybe to soothe or to help somebody. These new studies are discovering that the age-old golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated, is actually part of our genetic makeup, and it may be the answer to our survival as a species. Do sympathetic people... Uh, do better in the game of reproduction. Turns out they are more attractive as mates. Sympathetic parents have kids who are more resilient and who thrive more. Do sympathetic people do better in competitive situations with strangers? And we're starting to marshal data that show kind people fare pretty well and evoke a lot of trust in others. In another Berkeley experiment, researchers are seeking answers to overcoming prejudice. So now I'm going to have you take a saliva sample.
They put two strangers of different races together in a room. They first measured their level of the hormone cortisol, which is elevated when a person is under stress. They're given increasingly personal questions to ask each other okay, to compel、so、them to get to know each other better. James, how do you feel? After the last meeting in which they play a game, their cortisol levels are tested again. The study showed that cortisol levels dropped significantly, as low as the control group of same race pairs. Rudy Mendoza Denton designed the study. I expected those anxiety effects and those awkwardnesses that happen in in those initial interactions to persist for a long time, but those barriers came down pretty quickly. And we were really happy to see that. I think one of the primary lessons to learn is that cross-race friendship can be good for your health. Psychology professor Rob Willer studies why people do come together at all. Why do we cooperate? Why are we not just out for ourselves? If we continue to portray individuals as purely selfish, then we'll create more selfishness than is necessary.、Um, but also, I think we want to understand why it is that we do behave in a compassionate and empathetic way, so that we can create contexts and systems that support that. In one study using computer games, he told participants that they have a certain amount of money they can invest in a fund with other people. If they invested in the fund, the fund would be increased and divided equally amongst all the participants, or they could keep the money for themselves. When people do overcome the temptation of self-interest and、uh, instead help others, cooperate with others, they're respected more in their group, and then upon receiving that respect, they then help others even more. Willer and the others studying the science of happiness believe their positive results can help rewrite the prescription for a happier society. From UC Berkeley, this is Roxanne Makasja. This is the auditorium at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at UC San Diego, where pharmacy students take classes alongside their counterparts from the School of Medicine. Well, most California med students go on to practice in urban and suburban communities. Leaving the rural areas chronically short of well-trained physicians, well, UC Davis is trying to do something about that by matching its new med students with seasoned and satisfied country doctors, and it seems to be working. Paul Fotenhauer explains. One in five Californians live in rural areas. The people who live here suffer more chronic health conditions and have higher rates of hospitalization than those living in urban settings. The challenge is to improve their access to primary care and improve their health. Primary care physician Dr. Bob Hartman has been crisscrossing Amador County for 22 years, preventing illness and treating the sick and the injured. But his patients are not just names; rather, they are his friends. So maybe I'm doing all right. I think I am. <laughs> People would recognize my bug. There weren't very many lime green bugs in the county there, and they would like follow me into a gas station and ask me a, a, a medical question, or go, you know, see see it parked outside the grocery store and go into the grocery store to find me to ask me something. And it's just another one of those little quirks in a, a small town. We come down Broadway. Whether it is a lunchtime jog through town with friends or shopping at the local grocery store, everybody knows the town's doctor. That better be healthy food. Hey. <laughs> and if you're too ill to make it to the clinic, guess what? An old-fashioned home visit by the doctor is not out of the question. This day, Hartman is visiting 74-year-old Maria Baker, a longtime patient of his. She's had、uh, significant heart problems.、Uh, she has 
some other chronic medical problems, but then on top of that, uh, pneumonia, and, and then her poor husband passed away. So it's really been a, a difficult, difficult time for her. And hold it again. This good-natured patient is deeply appreciative that Dr. Bob made the effort to come and see her. It's just overwhelming. It's just wonderful. The concern of many people around here is when Dr. Hartman retires, will someone take his place? Well, nationally, the challenge is that only one in ten doctors choose to work in a rural community. As a result, the UC Davis health system is committed to increase those numbers. And the way they're doing it is that they're giving their students experience working in rural communities starting in their first year of medical school. We have a doctor shortage of about 17,000 physicians in five years, and a large part, part of those are in rural areas. The population is growing, and we have a generation of physicians who are about to, ready to retire. And the ones who do train disproportionately settle in urban areas. Hilti is directing a UC Davis health system program to help California's underserved communities. This initiative, called Rural Prime, stands for Programs in Medical Education, and it will produce hundreds of physician leaders who will help fill the state's need. We know they do better out there if they're familiar with a rural setting. They grew up there. They've had training there. And that's probably the most important thing. The heart of the program is the connection between the rural physician and the student. This amateur physician has become an important link to third-year UC Davis medical student Terza Cannon. The two of them are spending nearly eight weeks together in all facets of primary care medicine. What did you hear? Um, I heard some bronchi on expiration over here and then increased breath sounds at the bases. Yeah, for, for Jed, that really sounds pretty darn good. Okay. Check over his right middle lobe also. It's very important for them to simply dive in and do what we do on a day-to-day-to-day -to -day -to -day basis to see the patients that we see, to go to the hospital, uh, to go out and make home visits, and really get a sense of community, of what the community is like. We have a unique ability to do that. That can't be done in a university setting. Students who volunteer to enroll in this program not only receive their medical degree, but they also get a master's in public health. That combination helps them become leaders and advocates for improving health care delivery in isolated communities. One of the skills that I hope to take with me that I've learned from Dr. Hartman is how to really listen to your patients and how to give them your time in a way that you don't seem hurried, that you're interested in, that you're concerned. The Rural Prime program allows Cannon to travel all over Amador County and work with other doctors. Here in Plymouth, she works with Dr. Catherine Ledja with a patient who needs knee surgery. Then you grab the heel and you pull up and you just twist the, the heel over. Ledja says working with these medical students has been encouraging. They've been absolutely amazing, um, highly motivated, energetic. They've been actually really rejuvenating, I think, for the whole office. The UC Davis Prime program serves rural communities from King City to Reading. What we're trying to do is to try and train the next generation of rural providers that have the best medical training possible, that are trained in the environment in a rural community that they're likely, the type of community they're likely to practice in, and finally trained to have the skills um, and the knowledge that they're going to need to practice in this new digital age of medicine. The UC Davis School of Medicine is selecting 12 students a year out of a first-year class of 100 to become rural doctors. Many of these students have come from rural backgrounds and have the resiliency to succeed. You see a wide array of conditions, and that itself is challenging, so you have to keep up on everything. It's isolating. 
and one doesn't have the same number of supports as a physician. On the other hand, it's great because you're a community leader. So those are the challenges they have. You can practice good medicine in a rural area. You don't need the specialists looking over your shoulders. Good morning. This is my son, Mike. Hi, Mike. There are certain families where I take care of four generations of people. You go out to their house, you visit them, you, you learn so much more the totality of what makes up their day-to-day activities, their day-to-day health problems, and their day-to-day socioeconomic problems, all of which blends into how do you really take care of them. Is it painful up here? No. After another busy day, Cannon says her desire to serve a rural community as its physician is stronger than ever. Paul Fotenauer reporting from Davis. This room, this very chilly room, is called the Stacks, and it's where the special collections at UC San Diego's libraries are kept. Each UC campus has a unique set of collections that attract scholars from around the world. Among those housed here at UC San Diego are the papers of Dr. Jonas Salk, the pioneer of the polio vaccine, Dr. Francis Crick, half of the team who discovered the double helix structure of DNA, and Ted Geisel, better known to millions as Dr. Seuss. Long before he created the cat in the hat, Ted Geisel drew political cartoons, offering sharp commentary on the issues of the day. We go now to the special collections at UCLA, where Aaron Flannery has produced a report on graduate students processing previously hidden collections as part of UCLA Library's Center for Primary Research and Training. The Department of Special Collections is the part of UCLA's library responsible for rare books, manuscript collections, historic photographs, and other rare and special objects. Our department has one of the largest collections in the state of California of manuscript materials and other things too, but particularly of manuscript collections. have more than 1,700 collections, but that might not sound like such a huge number until you understand that, in fact, some of these collections are scores or even thousands of boxes. We store these collections in a big facility on the campus. We have two floors in this building. Each of the floors is the size of a football field, and no university library really has the resources to keep up with this valuable material. So, faced with this problem and the great backlog that we were developing of fantastic holdings, it occurred to me that a solution might be to involve graduate students who are already at a fairly advanced level of their studies, who have maybe language expertise in addition to subject expertise, and pair them up with some of these collections so that we would be able to draw on their knowledge we would share our knowledge of how to approach the cataloging and description. They would have first crack at this material that no one else has seen and thereby find an original topic for their dissertations or theses or an article. 
And in this way, everyone wins. You open up a box of stuff that's totally unwieldy, that's never been processed before, and there's no telling what's going to be in there. What first attracted me to the center was the idea that I could merge my film background with new skills I was developing in library school. And so what started out as kind of an interest in archival film, restoring film, preserving film, moved into manuscripts and photographs and different sorts of media. Not only do I have a comfort around archives, which I think a lot of graduate students don't, graduate students go into research and archives and you're scared if you've never been in one before and you don't know how things work. So this is like my home. This is a very comfortable situation for me. It's not terrifying at all. And I made friendships and professional relationships that have helped me out to this day. We have a trained archivist librarian, currently Kelly Buckley, who oversees the center. What I would suggest is putting mylar around this, and that okay. way when people in the reading room handle this, they won't get the, the red rot all over their hands. So that would be great protection for the book. She works with each student, helps them understand what goes into doing professional-level archival description, and brings every project to fruition. This is what makes it a very robust model. So this letter I came across and I basically just had no idea what it was because it's indecipherable. And so I went to Kelly and asked her, what is this? And she said, well, it's an example of cross-writing. To save paper, it's actually written across and then written this way. It took a little bit of effort to read, but it was really interesting. I'm working on the 18th century printing publishing industry, and so a whole part of this collection is letters from booksellers. I can figure out exactly where they were located in London at the time and see the types of things they were writing to their clients, what their clients were writing to them, authors or people who are doing binding. So I really feel like I have more of a grasp on this world that I'm writing about in my dissertation. Projects are selected based on two major criteria. One is the student's knowledge and expertise that they would be bringing to the project. And the other is the demand or research value of the collection. Many collections have been sitting for decades untouched. Recently, we were able to process a collection of Tanzanian newspapers that was donated by a political science faculty member this would have been a donation that I made sometime in the mid to late 1960s. Forty years later, I was contacted by the center and told that the Zanzibar collection was back on again. A Tanzanian graduate student applied to work in the center specifically to process that collection. Janet uh, Kaaya made it her project. And the fact that it's so well done, so well cataloged, and so accessible adds to the thrill of this having happened after that 40-year period. One of the things that I always tried to keep in mind is what are the needs of researchers, especially somebody who's going to be looking at this finding aid online and who's trying to figure out whether they want to make a trip all the way out to California. I try to be as descriptive as possible, but also efficient with time. One of my future goals is to become a university-level professor and in processing these collections, I started to consider possible assignments for students, trying to get them familiar with university archives. 
delving into manuscripts, documents, ephemera, things that they wouldn't get out of published books necessarily, give them a sense of how history is really alive. One of the surprising and wonderful outcomes of the center that we've seen over and over again is that as soon as these collections get processed and they're available online, we have people at our door dying to use them. And that wraps up this edition of State of Minds. We leave you tonight from the Price Center, which is the social hub of the UC San Diego campus, which, by the way, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So, happy anniversary, UCSD. We'd like to thank our friends here who have been helping us on this program and you for your interest in the University of California. We'll be back next quarter from the campus of UC Riverside. I hope to see you then. In the meantime, I'm Shannon Bradley. Thank you all for joining us. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.